World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The 1915 film The Birth of a Nation was a sensation across America, except in the places where its racist message was banned outright. We look at new research that shows an explicit and troubling link to racist violence wherever the film was shown. And sunglasses have long been more about fashion than function, but it wasn't always that way. We peer through the tinted history of shades, from slits carved in ivory to a handmade pair perched on the nose of a pioneering physicist. First up, though. European and British regulators released their conclusions yesterday about a possible link between blood clots and the AstraZeneca-Oxford COVID vaccine. The Prague, after a very in-depth analysis, has concluded that the reported cases of unusual blood clotting following vaccination with the AstraZeneca vaccine should be listed as possible side effects of the vaccine. The reviews were carried out after a small number of reports that those who received the AstraZeneca jab went on to develop blood clots in the brain or abdomen, leading to a total of 18 deaths in Europe and 19 in Britain. Wei Shen Lim, chair of Britain's Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, said a different vaccine would be offered to people under 30. We are not advising a stop to any vaccination for any individual in any age group. We are advising a preference for one vaccine over another vaccine for a particular age group, really out of the utmost caution uh, rather than because we have any serious safety concerns. However, regulators and Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson emphasised that the benefits of the jab clearly outweigh the risks. These vaccines are safe, they've, uh, they've saved many thousands of lives and people should uh, come forward uh, to get their jabs and we'll make sure... That Very rare side effects are bound to emerge as immunisation drives reach millions and billions of people. The current course correction clearly represents an abundance of caution on the part of regulators, but it may have far-reaching effects on the caution shown by people in line for a jab. So the first signal that there may be a problem caused by the vaccine emerged in late February, when doctors in several European countries began noticing clusters of blood clots, particularly in young women. Slaveya Chankova is The Economist's healthcare correspondent. And the European Medicines Agency looked at data on this, and they found, with the data they had by March 22nd, the rate of some particular rare brain clot in people under the age of 60 who have recently had the AstraZeneca vaccine was 10 in a million, which they thought was higher than what they would expect to see. Doctors began to examine 
these cases of clots suspected to be from, from the vaccine. And something quite unusual emerged in many of the patients. They had low levels of platelets. And then British health officials went back to their databases, looked for that specific combination and found that the rate of uh, this condition occurring was about four cases per million. Well, by how much? How much higher is it than what you would expect in a normal population? It's really hard to tell. For the specific blood clots in the brain, which were the original worry, the rates vary quite a lot by country, by age, by sex, and even which year you, you take. It's also a condition that is you know, not easy to diagnose. So estimates range from 2 to 15 cases per million people per year. They are more common in younger people and women. There hasn't been any specific feature or characteristics of these patients that can suggest why they're having this condition. The clots were found more commonly in women, but that's partially because more women have been vaccinated. And why the difference between Britain and the EU? It could be partially due to reporting how much vigilance there is for such cases, but also I think they largely have to do with the age groups of the people who've been vaccinated. From the UK data, it became evident that these clots are more common in younger people. And in the EU, probably the majority of people who've been vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine have been people under 65, because initially the EU did not allow the vaccine for older people, whereas the UK went the other way around and started vaccinating from older age groups. And as a result, a large share of those vaccinated are actually older So that probably accounts for quite a bit of the difference in the numbers. And these vaccines have been being deployed for months now. Why is it that the regulators are just now coming to these conclusions? Well, it's really hard when you have such an extremely rare condition. Because the clinical trials, usually you have, you know, 15 to 20,000 people who get the vaccine. But if you have an event like this, which is way more you're not going to see it in clinical trials. So it won't be until you've vaccinated millions and millions of people. So it really does take some time for unusual clusters to emerge and someone to begin noticing that something strange is happening or to see that in in the statistics. You know, currently regulators are tracking a very large number of medical problems to see whether any of them appear more common among vaccinated people. And if it's simply a numbers game, as millions, even billions of people get inoculated, then these kinds of correlations are are going to keep cropping up with, with rare conditions, I suppose. Yes, of course. There is literally no drug without side effects, uh, you know, even aspirin. So what we're seeing here is that the system for watching out for such things is really working. And regulators are being very transparent. You know, we saw with the British authorities, they provided detailed data on how much the risk is by various age groups, the specific numbers of cases, how many people have died, how confident they were in the data, what kind of studies and tests have been done. And the other thing is that once you know what you're dealing with, you would know how to catch it on time and doctors will start watching out for it. People are already warned to watch out for signs that they may be potentially having this rare reaction. And doctors also know how to treat it. But now that the regulators have put their their stamp on this particular question, how will that affect the rollout, do you think, in in Britain and, and Europe? 
We are already seeing some differences. So the UK has offered other jabs to people under 30 who are at the lowest risk of severe outcomes of COVID, hospitalization or death. So for them, they they have calculated that the risks of the vaccine, however tiny it may be, is more finely balanced, as they said. So even though it's very, very small, they think it's not worth taking if you're young and healthy. Now, if if you're older, the benefits of the vaccine vastly outweigh your risk of ending up in an ICU or COVID. Even if the jab will not be given to people under 30, it will only marginally slow the rollout of the vaccine because there are two other vaccines that are available at the moment. Now, the European Union has taken a different approach. They have just left it to countries to decide how to deal with this. You know, they've just said, here's the data. We still think the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks. And then every country is going to decide how to use the various types of vaccines that they have. But a lot of the effect of this is not on the basis of what regulators say. It's what people sort of think and and want to do and, and feel safe doing. I mean, how much do you think all of this will affect vaccine hesitancy? The AstraZeneca vaccine, there have already been a couple of controversies about the initial reports about efficacy and You know, this is yet another problem in many people's eyes. So I could see how, especially in Europe, where vaccine hesitancy already is on the higher side, lots of people may may not want this vaccine. So I think it is the duty of regulators to be as transparent as possible and explain to people clearly what the risks and the benefits are. Slavia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. For a deeper dive into how COVID vaccines are transforming science and politics and how all this may play into vaccine hesitancy, listen to our sister show, The Jab, on Economist Radio. There's a new episode every Monday. Find it wherever well-regulated podcasts are administered. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In 1915, a historic film opened in California. The silent movie was the first to use extras, the first to use a musical score, and the first to be shown at the White House. But The Birth of a Nation was overtly, explicitly, unapologetically racist. A pro-Southern take on the Civil War, it portrayed African Americans, played by white people in blackface, as lecherous brutes. It celebrated a lynching by the Ku Klux Klan. It was advertised as the mightiest spectacle ever produced and shown hundreds of times in America in the five years after it was released. What's only clear now is the legacy that the film left. Wherever the mighty spectacle went, racist violence followed. Birth of a Nation was launched. It didn't just roll out to theaters as you'd expect. Elliot Morris is a data journalist at The Economist. 
They went on this thing called a road show. It's just this big jazzy production. They brought a full orchestra with them to play along to the silent film. And it was a cultural phenomenon. So about a tenth of the population saw it, even more white Americans in the North. And if you adjust for inflation, the gross amount that people paid to see this film makes it the third highest grossing movie of all time. And what effect did it have among the more overtly racist parts of of American society at the time? Well, that is a hard question to quantify. I mean, anecdotally, the KKK had disbanded by the time Birth of a Nation was shown in the late 19th century. Their membership completely dropped to zero and there were no real activities. But it was reborn six months after Birth of a Nation premiered. William Simmons brought a busload of people out to Stone Mountain, Georgia, outside Atlanta and burned a cross and sort of declared the KKK restarted. And that movement immediately took off. It had 100,000 members by the end of the year, 1915. It had millions by 1924. So we can reckon that it also had an effect on violence. And a new paper by a Harvard public policy professor and economist named Desmond Ng tries to assess those direct effects mathematically. So how can you work out the, the effects of this film from, from this point in history? Well, so the Birth of a Nation Roadshow visited just over 600 counties out of America's thousands. So Mr. Ng looked at the differences in all this violence in counties that had shown the film versus those that hadn't and found that if a county screened Birth of a Nation, their lynchings rose about fivefold in the month after they saw the movie. Race riots also increased by about fivefold. And by matching up data on KKK membership with where a Birth of a Nation roadshow went, Mr. Ang found that counties that screened the movie were about 60 percentage points likelier to have an active KKK chapter, what they call a clavern, in 1930. But, but what if the causal arrow is pointing the other way? What if areas full of racists were just particularly likely to show the film in the first place? So uh, because you have all of your data dispersed across counties, you can also gather other information that might predict violence. So you can control for a county's level of racism, maybe it's lynchings in the past. Mr. Ang controlled for the vote share for racist presidents like Woodrow Wilson. You can also correct for whether or not the counties in the South or had Confederate monuments. And by doing so, you attribute the causal impact of showing the Birth of a Nation film much more properly than you would have if you're just comparing rates across time. So in Kansas, where showings of the birth of a nation were banned because of its racism. There was no relationship between having a movie theater and future KKK membership, but that wasn't the case in every other state in America. And so what's the hypothesis on exactly how this film had such negative effects in terms of racism? Why, why, why would seeing it lead to all these onward effects? Well, that is quite a hard question to answer. Now, we can speculate, right? Psychologically, Being part of a group that validates violence against black people might make you more likely to commit violence against black people. Or it could be that the glorification of violence actually increased racial violence in America, underlying latent tendencies to want to hurt your neighbor of a different race. And so how long-lasting were the effects here? Once these claverns get set up, once once these patterns are, are established, do they stick around? Well, just like you can compare the relationship 
to screening Birth of a Nation in 1915 and having an active KKK chapter in 1930 or lynchings in 1917, you can also compare the likelihood of having an active KKK chapter later, say between 2000 and 2019. So Mr. Ng gathered the proper data and he ran basically the same analysis at different points in time. And he found that that 60 percentage point increase in having an active KKK chapter in 1930 fell to an 18 percentage point increase in the last two decades, but it's still a significant increase. And the impacts of the birth of a nation are not just found in data, they're also found in our culture, both now and over time. So the imagery of the film is burned into our public consciousness. The KKK before birth of a nation did not wear white robes and white hats. They wore sacks. They sort of looked like scarecrows. They did not burn white crosses. That was started in Stone Mountain after the film was shown. The direct effect on racial violence is also a direct and long-lasting effect on our culture. Well, insofar, this is a a surprisingly quantitative look at at the effect of some media on some racist attitudes. I mean, does that hold any lessons for media watchers today, do you think? Yeah, after the film was shown, D.W. Griffith, the director, noted its awesome power. He said it terrified him. He did not expect it to increase KKK membership or inflame racial tensions to the degree that it did. And part of this was probably due to the novelty of the movie theater silent film screening of the time. Many Americans who watched Birth of a Nation had never seen a movie before, so they're probably mixing some of this awe of technology with the imagery of the movie and accepting it in ways we might not today with a lack of novel media. Elliot, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. In 1984, the Canadian singer Corey Hart wore his at night. That same decade, the Blues Brothers wore theirs to order fried chicken and dry toast in a dingy diner. You want butter or jam on that toast, honey? No, ma'am. Dry. In the turn of the millennium film The Matrix, the protagonist Neos stayed put even during acrobatic hand-to-hand combat against multiple assailants. Nunn, presumably, was much concerned with Shade's original purpose, eye protection. Eyewear that allows us to see in the sun's glare has quite a long history. Gilad Amit is a science correspondent for The Economist. Thousands of years ago, the Yupik people who lived in the frozen expanses of North America were carving slits into walrus ivory to make eye coverings that allowed their eyes to see in the reflected light. But walrus ivory is, is not yet glasses per se. You're right. Glass doesn't enter the picture until the 18th century. That's when tinted lenses emerged as a way of protecting our eyes from the sun. But devices from this period, though they're recognizable to our eyes as sunglasses, have a very different association. Instead of symbolizing cool or sophistication, they were synonymous with infirmity. They were essentially medical devices built to protect weak eyes from bright sunshine. It wasn't until the early 1900s that sunglasses, as we know them today, began to step into the light. And what happened at that point? That's when workers making glass bottles in the north of England started losing their sight. 
most likely from the infrared radiation blasting out of the glass furnaces they were exposed to all year long. In 1908, the government had committed itself to paying compensation for industrial injuries of this type, so they tasked scientists with getting to the root of the problem of what was called glass blower's cataract. And that resulted in an octogenarian physicist called William Crookes heading out to the glass works of uh, northern Lancashire to take measurements in the heat of a glasswork furnace. And what happened when science was brought to bear? So William Crookes realized quite quickly that infrared radiation was the problem and experimented with hundreds of compositions of glass to find ones that were capable of blocking infrared radiation out. Eventually, he found what he was looking for, a lightly tinted sage green glass, which he called Crookes Glass 246, that he suggested be used by glass workers. But along the way, he was interested in developing glass that could dim the sun's glare and also block the dangerous ultraviolet light that the sun gives off. These would be perfect for wearing outdoors. So he devised such a glass, and in the summer of 1911, this distinguished old scientist and his wife became perhaps the first people to go for a stroll wearing modern-style UV-protective sunglasses. So it was William Crookes and his wife who ultimately made sunglasses cool instead of, well, medical devices. That journey that sunglasses went on, going from being something as uncool as safety wear to an iconic fashion accessory, is a very complex one. And there are all sorts of factors that played a role. Vanessa Brown, a historian of fashion at Nottingham Trent University, has written an excellent book on the subject, and she has a number of theories. Some of the most important ones are probably that the goggles worn by pilots in the First World War made eyewear suddenly seem dashing, the sort of protective wear worn by extremely brave individuals. And perhaps most importantly, film stars started wearing them and were seen wearing them behind the scenes. Photos emerged of actresses like Joan Crawford wearing sunglasses, though whether to protect their eyes from the lights on set, to hide from paparazzi, or to conceal the consequences of a heavy night remains unclear. Ironically, though, as sunglasses became ever more fashionable, they also became less safe. How so? It's very hard to tell if you're picking up a pair of sunglasses whether or not they're actually opaque to UV light. If they're not, they can be actively harmful because shaded pupils tend to dilate, which leads to them absorbing even more of the dangerous ultraviolet sunlight than they would if you weren't wearing sunglasses at all. Things improved in the 1970s when the industry began to adopt safety standards, but the trade in unsafe counterfeit shades still thrives today. Sadly, for all the joy that sunglasses in all their forms have wound up giving holidaymakers over the past hundred years, they proved useless to the people they were originally intended to help. The glass blowers, you mean? That's right. The glass blowers that Crooks invented his original proto-sunglasses to protect never wound up wearing them. When the Royal Society issued a report on glass blowers' cataracts in 1928, it wrote that all attempts to persuade workers to wear these lenses had failed owing to, and I quote, the innate conservatism of the British workmen. It's possible that the glass blowers thought sunglasses were deeply uncool or perhaps just too trendy for them to wear. From the moment of their introduction, it seems sunglasses were just too fashion-forward for some. Gilad, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. 
See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.